0: This is the show where we talk about the psychology and ethical application of influence and persuasion in life and mostly in business, helping you to become a more powerful persuader and also allowing you to build authority and influence with your business. This week, we're going to be talking about data storytelling. And if you don't know what that is, well, if you ever have to deliver any kind of information, statistics or research, you'll know that it can be sometimes difficult to make sure that's done. In a way that is engaging and even exciting for people, that they understand what's going on with it and that it's not putting people to sleep. The last thing you want is people checking their messages or playing games on their phone whilst you are giving a presentation or a talk about how some particular data or information or research is relevant to what they need to know. So it's absolutely essential that we get good at telling stories with data if we need to do that in any part of our professional lives. And my guest is Sam Knowles. He is a professional data storyteller. He has written about data storytelling as well. And he has a podcast about big data, which he hosts with several other people who work in his industry. They talk about a lot of the issues going on with big data in the world. Obviously, a lot of the stuff that's going on with the likes of Facebook and other issues that are affecting all parts of our lives right now. I hope you'll enjoy this show and that if you do have to deliver any kind of data in your own professional life, that you'll find something from here that you can take away and apply in your own professional work. A quick apology to regular listeners to the show that there has been a delay in production here at Casa Johnny and uh, I'm doing my very best to get back on top of things. This is really just been due to an overload of work and some recent not feeling very well and also a few technical problems as well that have just piled on top of each other so the show is returning to a normal schedule i'll be getting caught up on shows as quickly as possible and resuming our regular frequency of shows so please look out for that and accept my apologies if you've been waiting for the next show to come out Please do make sure you are subscribed to the show, though, so that as soon as the shows do come out, you get notified and they are there straight away for you if you are following the show. For now, enjoy Persuasion with Data Storytelling with my guest, Sam Knowles.
1: Welcome to Speaking Influence, the show that explores the psychology and application of ethical influence and persuasion in life and business with persuasive presentations and podcasting coach, Johnny Ball. If you're a coach, speaker or course creator and you would like to have a simple online ecosystem for your business where you can create funnels, Build an integrated website, sell and host courses and live programs, build your list with lead magnets, manage your sales, create communities and so much more in a way that is affordable and fully supported. You will love New Zendler. You can try everything out for free and if you love it you can register for monthly or discounted annual billing. Don't pay for multiple services that you have to link up manually. Get an online solution that does everything you need in one place. Find the link in the show notes and try New Zendler as the all-in-one solution for your business today.
0: Welcome to the show. We are going to be talking about data storytelling today. And if you don't have a clue what that's about, then you definitely need to stick around and listen in. Let me welcome to the show. My guest is going to tell us all about what data storytelling is and maybe a bit more besides. Welcome, Sam Knowles. Thank you very much, Donnie. Love to see you. It's great to have you with me. And I've been looking forward to speaking with you as well. We had a great chat a while back now while we were planning for all of this. And I knew there's going to be a good chat to come and speak to you today. Before we get into the stuff we're here to talk about, and let's just get a bit more of an idea about who you are. So if you could invite anyone to a dinner party, it could be someone from history, someone fictional, it could be someone who's around now, who would you choose? and why? Professor
2: Sir David Spiegelhalter, who runs the Winton Centre for Communicating Risk at the University of Cambridge. I've met him. I've been involved in a workshop with him. I had great fun with him. He is one of the very few people, I think it's fair to say, who has had a good pandemic. So Spiegelhalter runs this He's a former president of the Royal Statistical Society, he's a public intellectual, he's written a beautiful book called The Art of Statistics, quite technical but, but beautifully expressed. He has a team of experimental psychologists that work with him and they are expert in communicating risk under uncertainty. He's also been on Wipeout, the the BBC game show. I think he came seventh in Wipeout. He (laughs) knows his way around South American wine, but most importantly, as a kind of hero data storyteller, he has been very, very public throughout the pandemic and indeed before. He's the guy who set up, there's a a Radio 4, but it's, it's 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 a podcast streamable worldwide, a programme called More or Less, which is all about statistics in the news presented by the FT's and the, the FT's Tim Harford. And I think David has done more than anyone else for um, not uh, simplifying, but bringing to the public attention how to tell stories with data and statistics and how not to bamboozle people. So David would be there. He's
0: good fun, but also we'd probably have a good chat. I'm, I'm imagining not too many people would have predicted that answer, but it is, <laughs> it is great. And I, I have a feeling you thought about it before, Sam. So
2: <laughs> It was entirely off the cuff. I promise you it was entirely off the cuff. But I was
0: just thinking <laughs> through his book only yesterday. So perhaps that was why. There you go. Good answer. And, and I appreciate you're sharing that with us as well. We're here to talk about data storytelling. Now, let's first of all set for what we're actually talking about here, because we've had guests on the show talking about storytelling before, amongst other things, and how important that is in the world of influence and persuasion, a really critical part of that, and public speaking, besides. What is data storytelling, and how did you come to be such a data storyteller?
2: Okay. The first is going to be shorter than the second, but I'll try not to give you my whole resume. So a data storyteller is somebody who builds powerful and persuasive narratives and empathetic. They are designed to move people to not necessarily change their, their opinion, but to get them to think or act or believe something different. So they are stories, they they are narratives, they will obey rules of narrative structure, you know, Aristotelian beginning, middle and end, three part structure. They you know, they will respect the audience. But in respecting the audience, um in this world of bigger and bigger data, I think it is fewer and fewer organizations and individuals who speak on behalf of organizations who actually take the time to be human and empathetic and understand that um, there is this thing, the curse of knowledge, right? The curse of knowledge described by the Harvard psychologist Steve Pinker in an excellent book called The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century. The curse of knowledge is the difficulty of understanding or of realising that people do not know something that you yourself know. It's really difficult. You know, you can't unlearn. Well, you can. You can forget stuff, but it's hard to unlearn stuff. Yeah. But in but in corporate and brand and government and uh, academic institution, in all forms of communication, data matters. There is more and more data surrounding all of us there are many who make the fundamental mistake or they they suffer from the curse of knowledge and they do not realize that those they're talking to do not know nearly as much about the topic of their expertise as they do. And they believe that by showing their workings out and by drowning those they're looking to influence with data and statistics, they're going to win out. Now that just does not work. It makes people turn off. I was just, before I tell you how I came to be one, I want to tell you, I I was on a research debrief. It was not Mm -hmm. research I had done, it's a research that a market research agency had done during the pandemic. Very senior clients. And there, were, there weren't there hundreds, but there were dozens of slides that showed that this hadn't, changed, this hadn't changed, this hadn't changed, this hadn't changed, this hadn't changed. And it took the most senior client five minutes to get so bored. She didn't do her emails, you know, that intense stare that you see with, when people are, she didn't do emails. She started playing Yahtzee on her phone. Now, I know she started playing Yahtzee because she was wearing glasses and it reflected off them. Now, Oops. that is, I think, the definition of uh, bad, bad storytelling, that, yeah. the person that you want to influence. But it's really bad data storytelling. Um, so data storytelling, building powerful persuasive narratives that use data as their underpinning, that, that you make judicious, human, empathetic Uh, use of data in a way that avoids this curse of knowledge, that finds and uses only relevant data and realises or or, or reflects that we make our decisions emotionally. We only go on to justify them rationally. You know, the ancient reptilian and limbic parts of the brain is where we make our decisions. The work of Princeton psychologist Pinker's Opposite Number and Daniel um, Daniel Kahneman, Mr. Thinking Fast and Slow. His work and his work with Amos Tversky over his life um, I think they've established a number of things. One of those things is that we are emotional decision makers. Now, the bit of the brain that says, I'm going to vote for this person, buy this product, uh, support this cause, it doesn't have any access to language let alone data or information or statistics. It's the uniquely human cerebral cortices, the gray and white matter that surround those old bits of the brain that go on to say, and I've chosen to vote for this person or to buy this product because it's th- because they're aligned with me, because it's got the best miles per gallon, because it'll make me smell nice. But those are post-decision-making, post-rationalizations and if you start with data and you try and drown people with data or browbeat them into submission, you will fail. Cognitive Psychology 101 will tell us we will put up a wall if you try and do that. There is something in the psychological literature now known as the project fear phenomenon. And I make not a political point at all, but you may remember that Leave had a single statistic that they repeated ad nauseam Cummings and Johnson's daft bus, that number, the 350 million, and Project. And leave dubbed Remain in the UK project Fear in the EU referendum because they would bring forward the head of the Bank of England and and their data was just the tsunami and I think one of the reasons one of the reasons for the failure of Remain was their very very poor data storytelling.
0: Well, yeah, that and the and the. Data manipulation that they did behind the scenes with Cambridge Analytica and that they cheated. <laughs> you know, there, there's a there lot, there would be, be a lot there to unpack. I don't even want to agree. <laughs> Um And you, so, that, so I said that would be a short answer,
2: but that was your first question is what is, I hope that's a good definition <laughs> of what a data storyteller may be.
0: It, it is. And I've uh, had some people on the show before talking about how you deliver maybe what would be dry informational content in an engaging and interactive way but this is a, a very different aspect of that I'm talking about really being able to deliver data and, and statistics statistics in a way that is still going to appeal to all those parts of that people really connect to I mean I could see there could be a, a potential advantage to having people so bored out that brains that they want to be playing Yahtzee on their phones. If you want to be implanting some subliminal hypnotic suggestion or something like that, that could be your opportunity to do it. But I, I don't think that's going to be particularly beneficial in most cases.
2: I, I, I mean, I'm completely with you. I mean, I, I mean, I, uh, Dan Pink, the American business writer, um, he wrote a book called To Sell His Humor. And intercell is human he he says that we are all in the moving business we're all in the right. persuading business and that's true whether we're a doctor who wants her patients to take drugs or to the end of a course or a teacher who wants his pupils to do homework and revise or a political orator or a marketeer or whoever we may be we want uh, I mean, we want to get a reaction. It, I mean, it may not be that we want to get agreement. It may not be that we want to get assent. But it, but it's much better, I think, if we are in the moving business to get a reaction rather than just a kind of may or a or, or a game of Yahtzee. However, yeah. subliminally the messages may be being implanted. You want to get um, a, a reaction out of people, and I think that the data heavy injudicious kind of sick on a page showing your workings out i mean it just doesn't work and in a in a hyper connected world let's say it's a commercial decision you're making if i go on to company x's website and i am just bamboozled and it happens very often with we're such experts here in this b2b sector and and then i i, I kind of lose the will to to read on and then i find somebody who's got exactly the same product but they talk to me in a human way and they give me a couple of killer statistics that show how it's going to improve my productivity. I'm going there. I'm absolutely going there.
0: Absolutely. What makes someone become or want to become a data storyteller?
2: Well, you know that I, I, that old line of the Irish American who goes looking for his heritage in, in rural County Cork or whatever, and then bumps into a farmer and says, can you tell me how I'd get to Dublin? Um, well, and the farmer says, "Well, I wouldn't start from here." I mean, I would. I I can't recommend people follow my path. Not that I've had a bad time, but it took a long time, and uh, and it's a bit convoluted. So, I uh, when I was at school, I was, as they say, badly taught mathematics. Here's a data storyteller who's telling you he was badly taught. I was badly taught. I mean, there, I always say that there were more animal noises than algebra going on in my maths. My fifth out of six, I was in set five. Poor. Our maths teacher had worked at Bletchley. I mean, he was a great person, and us uh, bad at maths gave him a terrible, terrible time. Anyway, so that meant I did what I could do, and what I could what I could do was Latin and Greek and ancient history. Those were my A levels, and that was my first degree. And I fell in love with story and story structure, and you know, they did the Greeks in particular. I wasn't so fond of the Romans. The Greeks in particular invented a lot of really interesting things. They invented. Comedy and tragedy and epic poetry; those were the three forms of entertainment. And they had, you know, wise philosophers who wrote stuff down. Also, other philosophers like Socrates who wrote nothing down, but people know, uh, read more of his words than than anybody else. Certainly in, in in direct speech. But and then Aristotle Aristotle wrote this really thin and and, and readable, particularly a translation. It's very readable a translation. A book called the Poetics, where he picked apart what it was. He picked apart. It gave us two. Again, lots of things in it, but two. One about uh, about story structure, so beginning, middle, and end. He called it thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You know, the three part structure that then Cicero went on to to popularize. I know, I know you've you've talked with Cicero fans historically, but he also gave us pathos, logos, and ethos. So emotion, logic, uh, and character of the person who is giving, and those two. Sets of three are pretty good. And so I went down to the world, became a communicator, worked in agencies, worked in house, did PR, and was enjoying that, was enjoying telling stories for the old health education authority in the UK and the conscience of the booze industry, all these clients you get when you work in an agency. But after about a dozen years, I felt that there needed, there was something else. I felt, I felt, I was working at the time. Can you believe there were 11 variants of flora margarine? There were. (laughs) <laughs> was working for all of them, low fat, buttery, wow. cholesterol lowering. Anyway, uh, and Barbie—that that was my life. You know, they were great, great clients, but uh, you know, managed to irrit- manage to irritate. Actually, this is a uh, this is PR notoriety. Managed to irritate um, Naomi Klein in the second edition of No Logo. She got very cross with us, Petey. Painting- Painting a street in Manchester pink for Barbie's 40th birthday. Uh, Anyway, I thought there had to be more to life than than lard or yellow fat, as we call this in the agency, and Barbie. And so I went to a vocational psychologist and she said that uh, she did my first ever set of psychometric tests. Never had that happen before. Uh, And she said, oh, you're really interested in psychology. I think you should retrain as a psychologist of some description. And I'm quite literal, and I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. I like that. And so I found out that I already had this degree in classics, so I could go into a master's. And there were three great master's courses. So I sat the, uh, I had to teach myself the first year of the syllabus, sat the exams, got in, resigned, went on a round the world trip for six months, and then strolled in, you know, October two thousand. And the first two hours of my new life were a statistics lecture, and I'm oh, my wow. heart just fell through the floor i thought what you've done you idiot? you've given up a you know a six figure salary in a west end agency and you've moved to the sticks and you'll never what have you done i had a diversion i was getting married two days later so i had a diversion but actually after after about half an hour i realized in this two-hour statistics lecture that i had i didn't realize that i suddenly had this new language but i had two brilliant teachers One did lots of work all around motorbikes and motorbike accidents and minimizing those, and those were his examples. And the other one used the Radio 1 playlist, or commercial radio playlists as well, and fictitious creatures that he used in his research to try and scare three- and four-year-olds and find out the truth about phobias. And so the examples were real world, or pretend world, but they were very associable. And I massively overcompensated because I was so worried that I, well, one fell in love with psychology. I'd always been interested in human motivation and behavior. I was getting some professional rigor there. And two, with statistics. And so after I, so I, I mean, I stayed there, I did a master's and then a doctorate in psychology. And my doctoral thesis is Hundred and twenty thousand words, of which seventy thousand are statistical analysis. If I say so myself, it's even readable. I don't think many people have read it, but it was all about it was all about alcohol and emotion. But that is another story. And so, but I'd found this new language. So I had English clearly, and Latin and Greek and Sanskrit, and then statistics. Mm. And, I, and, I, and two thousand four five, I was coming back out into the world of consultancy, and data was suddenly starting to be important in. PR and marketing and you know Facebook had been born and Twitter was just around the corner and uh, uh, and, acad- and uh, academic papers I could read academic papers and make sense of the data in there and so I would be though I'd be chucked papers or data and they said can you can you make sense of that and I did and then I worked in marketing analytics for a bit and so I, I got to carry on using this and then when I set up my own business nearly nearly gosh eight years ago now it was clear that well it was clear to me that there wasn't really much of a There wasn't. There wasn't much of a market. There wasn't much of a supply in people who could make sense of data on behalf of companies and then use that for creative, human, emotional storytelling. So as I say, I wouldn't
0: start from here. Don't go and do three degrees. Um, (laughs) You don't need to do that. No, let's not do that. But you know, it's it's an interesting thing because uh, most people's uh, eyes will have glazed over by the time you've even finished saying data and statistical analysis. So making those kinds of things interesting (laughs) or relevant to people, you, you already have the, the work out there, but you have been doing that. Who are the people you think most need to know about that and how to do it?
2: So that's interesting. So I mentioned Pinker in his book, uh, The Sense of Style. And not only does he talk about what the, this curse of knowledge is, he also goes on to finger the five groups of people who he thinks are the worst uh, perpetrators of this. And so academics, he starts off with academics. He's fairly he's fair enough to have a go at his own people. Mm-hmm. And actually I was rereading, I'm giving a talk in a couple of weeks about this curse of knowledge specifically on that. And I was rereading his chapter in that book about the curse of knowledge. And he, and he gives some examples. He quotes some examples from his field. So he's, his area, he's written lots and lots of books about society and anger and all sorts of different things over the years, but his, Core cool area of, uh, of splitting knowledge is sentence structure. He he worked with Chomsky at MIT for many years. He's now at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, but that was his thing about how he's got a, a book called Words and Rules, which is all about regular and irregular plurals. I mean, you wouldn't think it was possible to make that interesting, but he does. He does. He went on to write books in you know, like called How the Mind Works, you know, it's rather more associable. Anyway, but he quotes some people from his field that he just doesn't understand from, from you know, people on the same... He quotes papers from people that he's presenting alongside a specialist linguistic... Con- no idea what the words mean. So academics is one. Government officials is another. And when I mentioned Spiegelhalter, who's coming to dinner it's tomorrow, tomorrow night, I can't wait. and uh, I don't know where we're going to be going. going to be a
0: fun dinner. But I don't know what, we, what we'll be serving yet, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Over the course of the last 18
2: months, a pandemic world, I think we have realised that what some... um politicians uh, said, and I, again, during the, the EU referendum in the UK, you know, we've had enough of experts with their acronyms. Well, that very same politician who will remain nameless giving a government press conference was only able to talk to his two experts. He had no way of answering the question because he needed experts. But government officials, the catastrophe, and I've got quite a good blog on it, uh, and spiegelholders wrote a very good article on it too, the catastrophe of the I called it the nightmare on Downing Street, the Halloween press conference to justify the second lockdown that wasn't a lockdown in the UK. Mm. The up-curse of knowledge, data overload that was used in a panicky Saturday attempt to justify. Government officials are often really bad at it. I think some of them have got better during the course of the, the, the pandemic. I mean, I think sometimes, I think it depends on, on the cards that they're dealt. But the chief medical officer, chief scientific officer have mostly done a good thing. But government officials are often very bad at it. Uh, uh... The legal profession and the fun- the financial advice and financial advice community are two that um, well Pinker says their entire success is predicated on the curse of knowledge that they don't explain to you what you know they speak to you in Latin if they're lawyers and they talk about they talk about compound interest to people who 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 were as scared of, of maths as I was at school and they just confuse them and they said don't worry you know we'll look after it three hundred pounds an hour please and then scientists are the last so I think. They're, they are definitely in the firing line. I would add one more, and I'm not trying to cut my nose to, to spite my face here. I do a lot of work with market research companies. I do a lot of training in the data storytelling area. I, I thought you were going
0: to say is there for a minute. I was getting never. worried. Never, never,
2: never. <laughs> well, no, never, never, never. Absolutely, no, 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 no definitely not. Not least because I, I, I dabble a bit myself. But no, the, the, the uh, market research, I, I love working with market researchers, partly because they have often really interesting data often presented in the most dullest digital way. But market researchers, are, the number of times I have been in a research debrief with a client or whatever it may be, and they'll flip open the laptop and it'll slay, it'll say you can, you know, if it's already connected to the projector, I'm talking about the pre Zoom days, but or pre pandemic days, but and you'll see slides one to 162 and you think, no, 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 no. Awful. Actually can I just tell you a quick story? I once Please. had a client, I once had a global consumer goods client. And he, I, I was warned before I went to go and see him not really to have a long presentation. And he was a very arrasal, half French, half Italian, who spent all of his time rubbing the back of his head in irritation and breaking pencils and biros throughout the meeting. And I opened my laptop and I had, I had some, they were mostly picture slides, right? They was, even if it was 15 years ago, it was a very human presentation. And he and he looked down. And he saw it said slides one to thirty two. And he grabbed my laptop for, from me, and he highlighted slides twenty one to thirty two. Hit delete. Hit save to desktop. And said, "Right now you can present to me because I don't do more than twenty slides." And now I think that was an act of not only passive but well, no active aggression. Mm. But what we did was we. I said, "Shall I just close the laptop and we'll have a conversation?" And he stopped breaking pencils and relaxed. And I think that the market research, I wouldn't do this to my lovely market research industry clients, but I think market researchers, that two things, one, they very often feel they need, because they've done this work, they, they're, they're keen to take you through the process and they're taking you through. But that, again, I'm afraid is a bit of a curse of knowledge. The other thing about it is that when I'm running this, this training and coaching and development, they are the fastest learners. And the, and you go back and see them in six months' time and there's no need to intervene anymore because they. Someone for the first time has held up a mirror to them and said, do you know what it feels like to be in your audience to see 162 slide feedback? Google have a, have a rule that if you were doing research for them, you're allowed to present three slides with no more than three bullet points. And I know that there, I know uh, having heard, you know, some of your other interviews, I, I was listening to one with Simon Raybold, you know, the, the curse of the bullet point, but Google will allow bu- uh, bullet points, three bullet points per slide maximum. Although, you know, if you have no bullet points or just a picture, that's even better. And then one uh, data point per slide. And, mm-hmm. and then, and then you know, uh, good, good, I mean, PowerPoint or Keynote or Prezi or whatever you want to use, they're amazing tools because you can put a break slide that says appendix and then you can have all of your data. And uh, and, I, and, I, and I, I, I've got a, f- a friend who's a fly fisherman who, who he took me fly fishing only once, but I, it wasn't I didn't enjoy it, but it just it wasn't to- J.R. Hartley, was it? Oh, no, sadly right. not. But he does have the same initials, so maybe. But he casts – what you want to do, I think, with data is to is to intrigue and pique interest as part of the story. It's the underpinning. You want people to say, that's interesting. Tell me more. How can you justify that? Surely the numbers don't say that. That goes against all of the thinking that we've ever had in this organization. Or, or oh, I don't agree with that. Or, yeah, I, I had a hunch about that, but can you tell me more? And then you go to the appendix and say, yeah, look, we've got this, this, and this. But not the other way around, because you can't win the other way around. You can mm. only win if you intrigue and pique their interest and get them to say, tell me more.
0: Well, that really leads us into talking more about the influence and persuasion side of data data storytelling. So we have to pique their interest. We have to have people hooked into this. So we've alluded to to some of these things. Let's maybe just lay it out as to how influ- how you go about influencing and persuading with data storytelling.
2: So I'll certainly say some of the things I've said already. So so f- um, let's start with the French mathematician Blaise Pascal and Mark Twain. And it's another dinner party for you. All right, that one, I'm yeah. afraid to say. But Blaise Pascal, Mark Twain, Winston Churchill and Oscar Wilde, they are all said to have said, and probably some were quoting each other, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Mm-hmm. And for me, that is—I mean, you know—the very busyness of business, the particularly business, but not also academia. The busyness of the knowledge economy, right, means that people feel that they don't have the time to to sift the data down to that they want to show it all. Show show it all to you. So, that, I mean, the first starting point would be to follow what Pascal and, and Twain and, and the others said, and to to force yourself. When you're building, what are you writing? You're writing a one-page memo for a minister. You're writing a research debrief. You're writing a PowerPoint presentation to win some new business. You're writing um, uh, a report of uh, the media campaign. Well, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It really, you're writing a lesson plan for, you know, for year thirteen psychology. Um, first of all, think about who's going to be in the room. I mean, I'm sure you've had lots and lots of people talking about the vital importance of knowing your audience. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things I think that is interesting is is using data to help you understand who your audience is. I don't want to be abstruse about it, but one of my favorite campaigns, and it's a very effective campaign, public health education campaign, has been run by a body called Sport England, it's called This Girl Can, and it's about empowering girls and girls aged 14 to women aged 70 to take more active part in sport i remember awards yeah it's a great campaign and they they realized about eight years ago now that there was a sustained gender exercise gap between boys and men up to 70 and girls and women at the same age partly that was down to football and partly the increasing popularity of girls and women's football is helping to address that there was something else and so they looked at what were the drags the drivers particularly the drags on exercise in in this very big and diverse group and they discovered that of those girls and women that didn't take exercise fully 85% of them said they didn't do so because they were afraid of being judged by others now even under a pandemic where you know one was allowed under strict lockdowns only to go out once a day nobody notices anybody else exercising apart from the small group of people that do notice them Delicious 85% of those that do notice think that's impressive. I should do that. I'm really impressed she's out there doing it. And that's why, in the campaign for real beauty, this one, the campaign for beauty, in This Girl Can, another one of my favorite campaigns, in this girl, that's why real women really exercising feature in all the six films that there have been so far because they are motivational real role models you know there are great things to be said for jessica ennis hill you know the the, one of the heroes of london 2012 both in terms of commercial side but also in terms of messaging and success but that's unattainable it's unattainable for people who are couch potatoes like i you know i've been i was long a couch potato i i i not motivated by this girl camp, but I started running ten years ago because a couple of friends on, on the school run were were doing the Couch to Five K, and I could this was something I could do before it got light early in the morning. I'm still an early morning running. I was out early this morning, but but the motivation. So using data to really understand who your audience are, but actually often you're asked to speak at an event. You're asked to you've got your quarterly sales meeting with the chief financial officer. You know your audience. It, it's bring your parents to school day, and you and it's. Tell year two about about what you do. You know who your audience are. You know if, if it's the marketing department, marketing department. This is an unfair caricature, but you know it used to be called the colouring in department. You might use less data with them than 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 finance and analytics. But so first of all, know your audience, and perhaps you might even need to use um, some data to to help to specify what that audience is. But then put in the blaze Pascal to to Oscar Wilde effort of writing a shorter letter of finding and using only truly relevant data I mean, one of my again I'm a big fan of public he- health education campaigns I guess it's where like, you know I guess it's where where communication and science can often meet there was in the UK and excuse my UK examples but you know that's where I am in about I don't know six seven years ago the British Heart Foundation a big charity, wanted to change people's understanding of what you needed to do. If someone had a heart attack, most people think you're supposed to give mouth or a lot of people thought that you're supposed to give mouth to mouth resuscitation and because that's a very technical skill, and people are a bit grossed out by somebody dying in front of them having to kiss them. It almost always fails. I mean, it, 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 so they wanted to prevent people doing that, and so what they did was they got Vinnie Jones, the former Wimbledon footballer and B movie actor, Hardman, to demonstrate in a uh, dressed up as a kind of Guy Ritchie East End villain with a couple of hoods to demonstrate mm-hmm. on someone who just had a heart attack in front of them, and another actor to demonstrate the 120, 110 to 120 beats per minute that no. you need to be pushing. And it just so happens that the planners on this campaign realised that that was... The beat uh, of "Staying Alive" by the Bee Gees. So you have "Staying Alive," which is a great message. One, but two, you have the ridiculous juxtaposition of Vinnie Jones as a as a East End hard man a disused bus garage to a seventies disco classic. So you've got an emotional message there. You've got a, a clash. Where it's pretty so, well. I mean. His henchmen in the back are kind of, that you know, they're, they're disco dancing in the most the most unhenchman like way, and so you've got that. But you've got this single killer statistic of 110 to 120 beats per minute, and if you're in a panic situation and someone's had a heart attack, you know, partly because the song dates from the late 70s, but almost everybody knows. The BG staying alive, so you can ha, ha, you can you can you could sing it to yourself. And in terms of lives saved, I don't think it's possible to measure that. In terms of public awareness and understanding, because you know situations are complex, but awareness and understanding of that single piece of information—hundred ten to hundred—I mean, in that campaign, they were, they did a, one other thing, which was you need to push down about five because the UK couldn't decide between metric and imperial. And so but they wanted to appeal to a broad audience. They say, push down about five or six centimetres. That's about two inches in old money, says Mr. Jones. Better a cracked rib than he kicks the bucket. Well, I mean, that's, as a piece of data storytelling, it tells you how fast you need to do it, how far you need to do it, They've really worked hard to find and use relevant data, and in terms of understanding, it went through the roof and it won awards, but it, it won awards because it was an effective piece of communication. So yeah. spend so know your audience, spend time to find and use only truly relevant data and be sparing and judicious in that. Don't browbeat people into submission. Get them to say, "Do you know what, Johnny, that's really interesting. You know, tell me more, or I disagree, or are you sure?" What's your evidence for that, rather than lining up your 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 erudition um, in front of them? Those would be three pretty good starting points, I'd say.
0: Yeah. So when you're putting a presentation together in this sort of banner, I'm guessing that's part of your process. Are there some elements that you can take us through for how you go about structuring it? It's pretty much the same in other ways as you might do any other kind of speaking, or there are, are there any specific things in addition that you would make sure you need to bring in here
2: it's that's a that's such a good question cobbler's children's shoes i hope it won't be a case of cobbler's children's shoes so i always want to start you know i always want to start with the audience in mind and and this is a, a, a training exercise but i do it on myself every time so i will write a 150 word pen portrait of who's going to be in the room on the zoom in the wherever it's going to be and there may be diverse people in that room but i'll always write myself a pen portrait which will give me a sense of what their data tolerance might be now that's not to say that I will want. To, uh, I mean, you know, I, there are other rule, decent rules of storytelling that I'm sure your other get, uh, other guests will have talked to you about. You know, about not using acronyms and initialisms and abbreviations and and avoiding jargon. There's a there's a, there's a uh, American TED talker uh, or TEDx talker Kathy Klotz, guest who coined this fantastic phrase of jargon monoxide poisoning. I can't claim <laughs> that for myself, but I I, I, I love that. You know, all what, of yeah, what yeah. the the kind of the Dilbert cartoons you see of, you know, the public is starting to understand it. It's time for more jargon, you know, that, that those sort of paddocks. So I, I think data tolerance is, is, a, is something to bear in mind when creating a, a pen portrait. Then, I mean, I'm quite... Structuring a presentation. I've done two totally new talk. To- I've developed two totally new talks one that I'm giving shortly after We Talk, and one that I'm giving in a couple of weeks. And I go for IKEA, but I'm sure other people sell them too, but IKEA sell them cheaply these long rolls of white paper that you put oh, over a weasel. Yeah, and you rip mm-hmm. them off, you do another one. Yeah. So I've got a long kitchen table, and I will roll, I've got one of those, I'll roll it out. And I'm afraid I'm a uh, post it note. Uh, fan and i different kind of posting notes mean different things but i will start entirely well i'll start entirely analog i'll start by taking notes and then i might do a, a kind of a rough you know i want to cover this this and this and then on my big piece of of paper which you know can go i mean our tables can extend up to 20 feet long so it can be a long story if you want it to be but i will map out the sections and i'll want there to be you know Aristotle and said so you can take classics out of the man, but you can't take the man out of classics, or whatever. It, maybe it's the other way around. I want it to be. I want it to be friends, Roman countrymen. I want it to. I want it. I want to tell them what I'm going to tell them. I want to tell it to them. I want to tell them that I've told it to them. And then I will. But pink post its, vibrant pink post its, for me, signify data points. And in the broad brush let's say there are going to be three sections and there might be three sections within each section I, I i don't know i don't know how complicated i'm going to ration myself and if i see more than one data point in each uh key section i'm going to have to make a choice i'll force myself to make a choice i mean i've got rhetorical devices that if particularly if it's an intera- interactive session that i can get people you know i I don't mean in a sort of Darren Brown mind control way. I'm not that skilled, but but you know there are rhetorical devices that, that one can use to get people to to ask you to explain more or to give you a bit more data. But I will I'll map it out in that way. And actually, the powerpointing process is mostly spent looking for royalty free images rather than I, I would never write I'd never start writing something using the artificial construct the, the linear thinking of I'm a Mac man, but I, I use PowerPoint because all of almost all my clients are pc people and fortunately these days it's pretty one for one uh, yeah. i never put the time in for keynote at all. i think it's rather more elegant it's got rather more elegant elements to it but the by far the majority will be thinking about you know what's the golden thread what are what is the thesis and the antithesis and how do we bring them together and then what role i mean, really what what role does data um play in this and how can we use data to make this story stronger it comes right at the beginning in terms of what is the day's tolerance of my audience but it comes really right at the end in terms of in terms of just before we get a, get
0: into actually using the using powerpoint to do it. yeah so if we want to model your process i, I like that you're very analog about it uh, one of one of my favorite places to go to I, somewhere that i will always look for an excuse to let myself go to is a stationary store all right bookstores and stationary stores they're like where I like to be and, and I can never resist even when I don't need it I love going there and buying stationery especially things like post-it notes and uh, uh and big of paper that you, all that kind of highlighter you, pens you know
2: you never know oh yeah I mean highlighter pens absolutely by the way I'll hold up this this little pen here I mean this is a this is a, a stalwart but I could I, 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 my nickname for <laughs> that is the planner's pen I can't you know the, the different colors mean different things in different meetings and different sense of notes but I love Rather than picking up another pen, I love the, the ability to to say, right, this is going to mean data and this is going to mean structure and this is going to mean quotes or whatever, or this is going to mean where we need to have something more visual. I know I'm deeply, deeply analog about it, but I mean, almost all of the, almost every, you know, almost every slide doesn't have the words that come out of the mouth. Uh, the data points may well be there but that was I mean, oh, I mean one it's not a, it's a minor hint and tip. but my, my my I'm a big fan of having numbers very big you know if if yeah. your killer statistic is 110 to 120 beats per minute I would just have that almost as the only thing on the slide if that's what you want to, you know I've done that I mean what I'll usually do is show that ad but, but if I if I've not got time you know just or, or technology just to have those words I mean no, I know very often one doesn't need to have any kind of visual aid at all. It, it can help with structure. I mean, it can well be that it's something that you play to yourself on, on a separate laptop just so that you know where you are. But I think it's, yeah, very,
0: very, very analog. Lots of post-its, lots of post I'm a fan of that methodology myself. I like to start off analog and then transfer to digital afterwards for storage, for backup. Because, uh, you know, if you lose your analog stuff, <laughs> it's, uh, it's too painful <laughs> to not have it backed up in some way, shape or form. Now, I know that I have come across lots of books about storytelling. I've read lots of books about storytelling. I still do love reading. Probably not so many about data storytelling, but you have written a book, Narrative by Numbers. What is the key reason that people are going to read that book, and what will they take away from
2: it? Well, it won't be the jokes, although, the, I mean, there are some, and it won't be the anecdotes about uh, odd members of my family that sit in the footnotes, although there are plenty of those too. Um, I, I mean, so I think that you say, as you say, there are lots of books about storytelling, and quite a lot of those, and the training and the coaching around them say we've had enough of data. Data's taken over. Data's data's really got in the way. And what we need to do is to get back to, you know, things that I feel passionate about too. We need to get back to Aristotle. And I say, yeah, but you can also, you can introduce, you know, if, if you join these two things together, you're going to be more powerful if you do it in the right way, using the type of prescriptions I've set out. But a lot of them will have no truck with data. There are lots and lots of brilliant books and courses and MOOCs and all sorts of things about data visualization and most courses and books about data storytelling are about deleting chart junk that's what they that you know they're about they they're about using i mean i think the one of the I think no, I think he's the best data visualizer. Is a guy called David McCandless who's written a book called Information Is Beautiful a number of years ago. The stuff that he has done about relative and absolute risk around COVID, his COVID dashboard. If there's room for it in your show notes, I'll send you a link. It's stunning. It's but it it is a it, data visualization is something different. You know, Florence Nightingale was a brilliant data visualiser. She convinced Queen Victoria with a a famous chart. She demonstrated what was happening with infection in, in field hospitals that changed hospital history not just british military military history there's that amazing piece of data visualization from the 19th century by a guy called dr john snow all about the spread of cholera from a hand pump in broadwick street in soho who was dying who lived near or far away from this and this is in a pre-microscopic or a pre-understanding of of microbial dates but most books and courses and 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 stuff around data storytelling are about data visualization data visualization is a great Great skill and doing it brilliantly, but it comes after the story. Yeah, and so I think people should read it. One because it's because it's it's kind of fun and breezy, but but no, two no, much more importantly because it it shows you how you know the worlds of analytics and storytelling are nice. You know, there I think there are two reasons for that. One is well, two problems. One is a problem with with education that makes most people in most Western cultures, in particular, specialised to be artists or scientists and not to blend the two. That's not always the case but but often it is um and then there's a problem with psychology and i mean i think there's a gross um oversimplification and misrepresentation of cognitive function that believes that there is a left brain and a right brain
0: Um, (laughs) yeah yeah
2: and you know the fact that we've managed to to get along for the past 40 odd minutes and have this conversation there are hundreds of things in both sides of both of our brains taking place simultaneously joined together through a, through a bundle of fibers in the middle that that depend on one another you know i talked about rational and emotional uh, rational decision justification and emotional decision making you know in terms of verbal production there's a bit of the brain on this side that produces words and understands what words mean and there's a bit of the brain on this side that joins them together into syntax but with two can't work without each other. They need to be joined together. So I, I think it's problem with education, problem with psychology that has... And also, some psychologists willfully misrepresenting, particularly in the age of fMRI scanners, look, this bit of the brain lights up when we do this, therefore it has to be, it has to be this. That's what it does. Not cultural, that's... That's, that's, yeah, I don't
0: think we're quite there with the brain mapping yet. There's a, there's a long way to go with all of, no, all of that if, understanding Yeah. yeah. If,
2: um, but also one other thing. Also, kind of popular media misconception. You know, yeah. you know, we like there to be single causes for things. We want the Gulf War to be all about uh, oil. We want Leicester City winning the Premier League in 19, 19, 2016 to be all about. Claudio Ranier, I don't. Know. Does it, we 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 want there to be single solution, single. But actually, there are multiple interacting solutions. That's true with the brain. But the popular media have fed on this, and they talk about. You know, I used to work with a business that described himself as the left brain advisor to the CMO, Chief Marketing Officer. That's fine, but actually, if you only appeal to his his or her left brain, he won't be able to understand what the world's mean because you know.
0: Silly. Indeed. Yeah, well, good. So it's definitely uh, definitely a book that's, that's well worth checking out, especially if you want to really understand storytelling in that kind of capacity as well.
2: Without there's doubt. another book on the way as well. Uh, there is. I mean, so so the first one's about dead storytelling. I've written. I, I wrote a sequel, modestly titled "How to Be Insightful." Last year, all about insightful thinking. Uh, again, how one uses data. And then um, the third in the, let's call it the the Using Data Smarter Trilogy. The third one is, is called Asking Smarter Questions. So I've spent a lot of the course of this year talking to people whose jobs Nobel Prize winning uh, biochemists to the head of West Yorkshire Police after Sutcliffe, after the Yorkshire Ripper, who had to use questions in a different way, to QCs and um, journalists and all the rest. I- I'm interested in where there are overlaps, but also what we can learn for people whose jobs, FBI hostage negotiators, chat show
0: hosts. Their life depends on asking smarter questions. What could we learn from them? And- yeah, I'm going to be reading it. I, I could do with asking some smarter questions. <laughs> yeah, we're going, going on to my reading list, that's for sure.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's I'm just... In the process of ramping up to, to writing right now, it's quite it, it's exciting because you know you don't know who's going to as with nonfiction as with fiction you don't know what characters are going to appear. Sometimes individuals or themes will appear that you had no idea were going
0: to be there. So I'm looking forward to meeting them. Right, well, I look forward to that coming out as well. I'll to be checking it out. As we unfortunately have to start drawing things towards a close because you do have other things to do. And we also don't want the episode to go on and on and on. And so let me ask you, what's the best way for people to come and find out more about you? Of course, they can check out your book, but how can they come and connect with you or find out more?
2: Sure. I mean, I would say that, I mean, my data storytelling business is called Insight Agents and insightagents.co.uk is where I live and where there are branches off to, to book microsites and the rest of it. Or, I mean, LinkedIn, I'm very discoverable on LinkedIn, Sam Knowles, data
0: story is where you find me on linkedin excellent well we'll put links to all of that in the show notes for people as well one thing that i always like to ask my guests for other than your own books is there a book that or maybe other one that you would recommend to people to check out maybe related to what we're talking about maybe completely unrelated just something that you really like or has made an impact for you what would you recommend so i'm going to give you two uh fiction books and and
2: and, and one of them is you're going to say this is so infantile, but I was always I was a big Roald Dahl fan growing up, and my favourite book until probably I was, or maybe it's still my favourite book. Uh, is fantastic, Mr Fox, because I think it's it is a it is a masterful piece of storytelling. For in many many ways, I won't bore you for one, the, all the different ways. I think it's a masterful piece of storytelling. That would be one. The other. Um, so I had always promised and threatened to write books, and here I am on the verge of doing my third. But but it took me until I was. Late into my 40s, to so actually work out how to do it. And I have a book, I had a book, I have uh, a book coach and book whisperer. There's a woman called uh, Beth Miller. And Beth is brilliant at helping people who who ha- have a chance to, who have something to say to help them work out how to do it. I mean, for example, whenever I'm writing with her permission, I text her my daily word count and she will send me an encouraging, that's extraordinary, well done, or, you know, a few more tomorrow and you'll be pushed past this. Anyway, so. Beth's written, so she took 11 and a half years to write her first novel, uh, and she now produces two or three books a year. And on holiday, I was lucky enough to, to actually leave these shores and go to Greece. And, and in Greece this August, I read her latest novel, which is called Starstruck. And it's all about a kind of a Beyoncé, but not actually Beyoncé, impersonator who swaps lives with the real Beyoncé, but not Beyoncé. And, and it is hilarious and entertaining. And it was just the book to read.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. So nice recommendations. I always like to get a bit of fiction in there as well. We can learn so much from fiction, just as much as we can often from reading non-fiction. So I like those recommendations too. As we wrap, do wrap things up for today, if there's just one thing you hope that people will remember or take away from our conversation, hopefully more than one, but if there's just one thing that people take away, what would it be?
2: It would be that it's an old story um, telling um not trick, but 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 it's, it's. I mean, I've mentioned it two or three times. The one thing I I would say is before you think about before you even before you certainly before you fire up PowerPoint. Clearly, you know, if you and I ruled the world, Johnny, it would be analog first. But before you uh-huh. even. Think about what you're going to say and in what form or structure you're going to say it. Do this exercise of writing a pen portrait of the people that you're looking to persuade. And it might be in a political campaign or it might be in a, with a book or a blog or a presentation. doesn't matter. Just write 150 words about what they're like and then assess what you believe their genuine data
0: tolerance is going to be. It's a good way to approach it. Sam it's been a real pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much for coming and being my guest and sharing your insights, wisdom, stories, and humor with us. We've really appreciated it. Thank you so much. It's my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you got some value from that, and maybe a few clues about how to be telling story with data and some good, interesting stories from Sam Net as well. It's been a great fun show. Next episode, you're going to get to hear my conversation with Pam Warren. Now, this is something I have already broadcast live. The episode with Pam, Pam is somebody who has been very influential. And a lot of people in the UK will have heard about that, will have come across Pam before, especially if you're around right about my age. She was involved in a very major train crash in the UK some years back, and she became a spokesperson for the rail safety. She's going to tell us about how she went about creating and building influence to change things, to improve things, to make things safer for other people, and to have an impact on the government and on industry to change things for the better a very powerful story of influence and persuasion and a very powerful personal story as well from an incredible guest so don't miss my chat with pamora next week do check out other episodes of the show please do support us by sharing out the show with your friends and your network and most of all if you found something that you can put into action from this week's episode please do that let us know what you did tell us what you think of the show so we can keep improving it and making it better for you and in the meantime go and make great things happen i'll see you next week